Service and the Strength for It by Horatius Bonner There is work to be done for God on earth, work such as cannot be done in heaven, nor is it less vast either in itself or its issues because crowded into so short a space as the one life of man. The time is short, and the work is great, and its doers are a feeble folk, and the difficulties are numerous, and the hindrances disheartening. But the work is God's, and it must be done. I must work the work of Him that sent me while it is day, and it is the thought of its being His work, work such as can only be done here below, that makes us willing to toil through the whole of our threescore years and ten, bearing the burden and heat of the day. Why are you reconciled to life? said one to Whitfield. Because I can do for Christ on earth what I cannot do in heaven. Yet the same Whitfield said, I want to leap my seventy years. I long to be dissolved and to be with Christ, feeling as Paul did, in a strait between the two things, between resting with Christ or laboring for Christ. The work to be done is of the same kind in all ages, yet it is not the same work in any. It varies, for God does not repeat himself in word or plan or work. Yet whatever be the differences between age and age, it always bears a peculiar mark or impress as being work done for God, with ends and aims such as belong to no other work, and with characteristics of nature specifically and entirely its own. It is work that never stands still, no, not for a moment, either through want of means or hands, for he whose work it is has the silver and gold at his disposal, and out of earth's stones could raise up workmen, should all else fail. My father worketh hitherto, and I work, said he who was the great doer of the work of God, teaching us that never from the beginning has God allowed his work to stop, but carries it on as unceasingly as he makes the sun to rise and set, or the tides to ebb and flow. One workman drops, another takes his place. One standard-bearer faints, another grasps the banner. One witness passes away, another is raised up to maintain the testimony. Elijah is caught away from his work in Israel, but Elisha comes in his room. Stephen is stoned, but Saul, his murderer, is laid hold of by God to be a witness for the faith. Patrick Hamilton is martyred, but John Knox rises up. Knox dies, and Andrew Melville takes up the standard. Melville dies, and Alexander Henderson comes forward to maintain Christ's cause in Scotland. God provides workmen to do his work, and captains to fight his battles. Sometimes the work is open and visible, as when God sent forth Gideon and Barak to deliver Israel, or secret and unseen, as when the persecuted saints of Jerusalem went abroad through the land preaching the gospel everywhere. Sometimes it is amid noise and strife, as in the case of Nehemiah, and sometimes in silence, as when the temple rose without sound of axes or hammers. Sometimes it is a long day of labor, as in John the Evangelist and Richard Baxter. Sometimes it is very short, as in John the Baptist and David Brainerd. Sometimes it is a work of suffering and martyrdom, as in Stephen or John Huss or Cranmer. Sometimes it is one of testimony and endurance, as in Enoch or Noah or Samuel Rutherford. Sometimes it is of battle and tumult, as in Joshua and David, or Gustavus and Cromwell. Sometimes it is one of government, as in Joseph or Moses or Edward VI of England. Sometimes it is in simple service, as in Obadiah of Samaria, or the little maid in Naaman's house. 
Sometimes it is the work of erection, as in Solomon and his temple. Sometimes of restoration, as in the case of Nehemiah or Hezekiah. Sometimes it is that of reformation, as in Knox and Luther and Calvin. Sometimes it is in labor, as in Paul and John Welsh and Judson. Sometimes in preaching, as in Whitfield and Roland Hill. Sometimes in writing, as in Augustine and Bunyan and Baxter and Edwards. It is work of the most varied kind, for every part of which God has the suitable workmen and the needed tools. Not only is there a time for every work, Ecclesiastes 3.17, but there are the doers of the work raised up and set to their parts, as were Bezaliel and Aholiab. And as this is not a work of one day or two, Ezra 10.13, but an unceasing work, so does God raise up workmen to minister continually, as every day's work requires, 1 Chronicles 16.37. And the workers are men, not angels. Angels look on and see the work done, or the battle fought, or the testimony borne, or the suffering endured. But the work, the battle, and the testimony, and the suffering are not theirs. The angel can bring food to Elijah in the desert of Beersheba, but he cannot bear Elijah's testimony. An angel can open the door of Peter's prison, but he cannot do Peter's work. An angel can shut the mouth of the lions in Babylon, but he cannot fight Daniel's battle. An angel can carry Lazarus from the rich man's gate into Abraham's bosom, but he cannot suffer the poverty or the sickness by which the poor saint did the work of God on earth. An angel stood by Paul to cheer him in the day of fear and shipwreck, but he could not carry Paul's message to Rome. Angels minister to little children, and always behold the face of their Father in heaven, but yet it is not out of their lips, but out of the mouths of babes and sucklings that God perfects praise. As angels ministered to the Son of God in his temptation, and strengthened him in the night of his agony, but could not do his work, it was so far above them, so angels minister to the saints and strengthen them and deliver them, but cannot do their work, it is so far below them. It is work which can be done only by feeble, sinful men, not by angels that excel in strength. The very nature of the work and the peculiar glory which God is to get from it make it necessary that it should be done by mortal man, not by an immortal angel, not by an invisible spirit, but by visible flesh and blood, not by the perfect, but by the imperfect, not by those who never fell and never sinned, but by the evil and the fallen, not by the untempted, unstruggling, unopposed, unwearied inhabitants of heaven, but by the tempted, struggling, weary, wounded dwellers of earth, sons of Adam whose whole life is a battle, made up of fightings without and fears within, whose everyday experience is a wrestling with principalities and powers, with the rulers of the darkness of this world, with spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.12 Yet it is not to all men that he commits his work, only to those who have received his testimony to the person and work of his Son, only to those who have believed the love that God hath to them, they only who know his name and his son's name know how to do his work, and it is as such that they do it. They do not work in order to know him, but because they have known him. They do not work in order to get the life everlasting, but because they have gotten it, in the simple belief of the good news concerning him who was dead and is alive. They do not work in order to remove uncertainty as to their forgiveness and sonship, but because their knowledge of the Son of God as the great substitute and reconciler has already removed all doubt and given them the happy consciousness of pardon and adoption. 
The rest of the world's inhabitants are not doers, but undoers of the work, not helpers, but hinderers, or at the best unconscious agencies doing what they understand not, mere hewers of wood and drawers of water. Their attempts to help religion are like Uzzah's endeavor to hold up the ark when the oxen stumbled. And if they ask then, Must we sit idle? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? We answer them, This is the work of God, that ye believe in him whom he hath sent. John 6, 28 and 29 In setting yourselves to do God's work, you must adopt God's order. You must begin in God's way. It is not work that produces faith. It is faith that is the root of work. It is not the good work that makes the believing man. It is the believing man that makes the good work. It is the tree that makes the fruit, not the fruit the tree. It is not the wise of this world, nor the learned of the church. It is not men of intellect or literature that are the workers. Not many wise is God's announcement as to this. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.27 It is not the great and the rich and the mighty and the men of name and rank and influence that are God's workers. Not many mighty, not many noble. 1 Corinthians 1.26 The poor and the unknown and the unhonored and the feeble and the unintellectual are often God's special agents, and by them his work is done best and with greatest glory to himself. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29 You say, What can I do? If I were a Paul, or a John, or an Augustine, or a Melanchthon, or a Rutherford, I might do something. But without learning, or ability, or means, how can I, in my feebleness and obscurity, do any work? Well, though you cannot be a Paul, you can be a Phoebe, a succorer of many, Romans 16.2, or a Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Verse 6, or a Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labored in the Lord. Verse 12, or a beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Verse 12, you cannot be the eye of the body. Can you not be the hand? You cannot be the tongue. Can you not be the foot? To each then of his believing ones God says, Son, go work today in my vineyard. Matthew 21:28. Be strong, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2:4. To the waverers he says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15:58. To the disheartened, he says, be not weary in well-doing. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Galatians 6.9 To all, he says, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22.12 Such is the church's position here. Such is her calling. As a worker for God and with God, she must work the work of God. This is our age of service for him who called us. These are our work days. The rest comes, the Sabbath draweth on. Six days shall we labor and do all our work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. In it we shall not do any work. Exodus 20.10 For then shall come the rest which remaineth for the people of God. Hebrews 4.9 
Then shall we rest and stand in our lot at the end of the days. Daniel 12.13 Then shall we rest from our labors, and our works shall follow us. Revelation 14.13 Meanwhile, let us be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.58 For work, however, means are needed, and strength to use the means. He whose workmen we are supplies both. The strength by which we do his work successfully is that which his spirit furnishes. Thou hast girded me with strength to battle. 2 Samuel 22.40 Self-supplied strength will help us but little, nor will the strength produced by excitement do much for us, for it operates fitfully. It is not steady and permanent, and besides, it is the offering of strange fire before the Lord which he commanded not. Leviticus 10.1 By such strength shall no man prevail. 1 Samuel 2.9 The strength needed must be calm, and its source must be as constant as it is divine. To say as Israel did, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength, is but to rejoice in a thing of naught. Amos 6.13 The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power. Psalm 68.35 Nehemiah and his zealous brethren had a great work before them, they had done much in rebuilding the ruined city, but more remained to be done, and for this strength was needed. Israel must be strengthened to do the work which was coming, but they were giving way to that which would not strengthen but weaken them. It was not the sorrow of the world in which they were indulging, nor was it the sorrow of patriots mourning over their city's desolation. It was godly sorrow, for it is said the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Nehemiah 8.9 Yet, as there is a time to weep, and a time to laugh, Ecclesiastes 3.4, so their weeping, however good in itself, was out of place. It weakened their hands for the work, and the time was not one for faintness or discouragement. Mourn not, nor weep, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For sorrow is weakness, not strength. It makes the hands hang down, the knees grow faint. It unfits for service by making us both feeble and heartless. No doubt sorrow is oftentimes the beginning both of strength and blessing, but in itself it is neither. By means of it God does strengthen and quicken, but in so doing he uses it as the physician uses medicine, which for the time reduces and enfeebles the body, though ultimately it brings about health. It was immediate work, to which Nehemiah was calling his brethren, and he saw that they needed not a medicine but a cordial, or at least that the present was not the time for going through the course of medicine. He and they must work, and the strength for that work lay not in sorrow, but in joy. It is joy, then, not sorrow, that is our strength, and they that have done most for God have been those who have had most joy in God. Joy, then, is the secret of our strength in working for God. It is to us what the locks of the Nazarite were to Samson. Let it grow, and we are strong. Destroy it, and we are weak as other men. It is not mirth, nor laughter, nor levity, nor gaiety that is our strength. These can merely do what wine or strong drink can do for the body. They can produce a transient and delusive strength, ending in greater weakness. It is true joy, the joy of the Lord, joy such as Jehovah himself possesses, joy such as Jehovah only can impart. It is this true joy which alone invigorates and quickens. This is strength. All else is weakness. 
It was this joy that was David's strength in fighting the battles of the Lord, and it was this same joy that was Paul's strength in fighting his good fight and winning his crown. It lifts up the hands which hang down. It strengthens the feeble knees. It makes the lame men leap as an heart. It forbids despondency. It puts heart and life into every effort. It defies danger. It levels mountains. It brings us off more than conquerors through him that loved us. The wise preacher exhorts a man to rejoice and do good in his life. Ecclesiastes 3.12 Isaiah says, Thou meetest him that rejoiced and worketh righteousness. 64.5 Paul sets down rejoicing in hope in connection with serving the Lord and being patient in tribulation. Romans 12.12 Desponding Christians do not make successful workers or valiant soldiers. Feeble hearts and ready to halt and little faiths win no battles and wear no crowns. They are so occupied with themselves, with their own experiences, their own evidences, their changing moods and feelings, that they have no time for manly, noble service. They are so busy in trying to perform acts of faith, and having performed them, they are so intent on analyzing them in order to ascertain whether they be all of the exact quality or quantity which will recommend them to God, that they leave no space for joy in believing, and no room for the free, large-hearted labor which such joy cannot fail to lead to. Tossed up and down on the waves of unbelief, like Paul's ship in Adria, they are in fear of perpetual shipwreck, and have no heart to work. Shutting their eyes against the light, they grope their way uncertainly, and cannot run the race. Afraid to believe, but not afraid to doubt, afraid to trust, but not afraid to distrust, doubting themselves, and making that a reason for doubting God, putting away peace, but giving full scope to gloom, refusing light, but letting darkness reign with them, they are not in a condition to do hard work, nay, to do any work at all. Strength comes from joy and of that joy they have none. They refuse both food and medicine, and they become lean and sickly. They are fitter for the hospital than for the battlefield. They seem, too, to get more and more emaciated, though the food provided is abundant, laboring under what physicians call atrophy. The more they eat, the less they seem to be fed. Never was truth of the most nourishing quality more plentiful set before them, yet seldom has it seemed to nourish less. What they need is the joy of the Lord, and that seems to have no place in them at all. Joy in their own feelings or experiences or evidences they sometimes have. Joy in the Lord they have none. Hence their bondage, their weakness, their heartlessness, their weariness, their inability for service. Let us put and answer these three questions. How to get this joy, how to keep it, and how to use it. First, how to get it. We cannot buy it, for we have nothing to give for it nor is joy a thing to be bought and sold. It must come freely or not at all, for it has no connection with earth's merchandise or with its treasures of gold and silver. As it is the joy of the Lord, it must come from Him, and it must flow into us through our knowledge of Him. For the knowledge of the Lord is joy. Acquaintanceship with Him is peace. Job 22:21. The revelation which God has made of Himself in His Word is the lesson book where the joy is written. The Holy Spirit is the teacher, and all the lessons of truth out of which he extracts the joy for us are these contained in this book, Lessons Concerning Himself. We do not merely say that he gives joy, as when one pours water into an unconscious vessel, but he himself is our joy, just as he is our peace. 
The things regarding himself, his purposes, his character, his doings, are such as to infuse joy as soon as known, so that we are not first to know God and then to go to him for joy, but in the knowledge there is the joy, the knowledge and the joy are inseparable. Where the knowledge is not, the joy cannot be. Where the joy is not, the knowledge is not. To this end has the Son of God taken flesh and dwelt among us, that he might show us that God, in the knowledge of whom there is joy, even for the sinner. For this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. How blessed for a man, and how glorifying to God, that we can say of the knowledge of God, it would at once impart joy, it would take away darkness and give light, it would heal and soothe and comfort. For what then are you waiting, O man? For the opening of some other source of joy? For some further revelation of God? For some miraculous manifestation of God to you? Ah, has not God made known enough of himself already? If that will not give you joy, what else will? What other manifestation of God do you expect save that already made in his incarnate Son? What farther sign do you look for beyond what has been already given, in the dying and rising again of him who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification? Is not all this enough? That which the knowledge of self can never do is done at once by the simple knowledge of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is love, and the knowledge of love is joy. Secondly, how to keep it. Some know how to get a treasure, but know not how to keep it. They heap up riches only to see them take wings and fly away. So is it with this joy. The glad tidings concerning it come to them. They receive them and are made glad by them. But the joy after a while seems to slip away. They lose its freshness at least and know not how to revive it. They try many methods but fail in all because they forget this great truth that the joy is to be got back again precisely in the same way in which it was got at first. The keeping it and getting it are, in truth, but different parts of the same process, or rather we might say they are the same thing. The keeping of the joy is but the continuation of the process by which we got it at first. The God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. Romans 15.13 the river is but the continuation of the fountain. The branches of the tree are but the prolongation of the root and stem. Today's sunshine comes to us from the same sun, through the same air, in the same way as yesterday, and is admitted into our dwelling by the opening of the same lattice. In knowing Jehovah, and in believing the love which he hath to us, 1 John 4.16, we got the joy. For it was by this simplest of all processes that it first found its way into our souls. So in continuing to know him and to receive his testimony to his own love, we retain the joy, or rather, we renew it every moment. This knowledge of God does not grow stale nor lose its virtue, so as to require the addition of some new thing, in order to make it capable of yielding joy continually. It was sufficient at the beginning, it will be found sufficient to the end. Like the atmosphere which encloses the earth on every side, it suffices for our whole lifetime, and we need but to breathe it constantly in order to fill ourselves constantly with the same heavenly joy. Yet there is among many a strange readiness to part with this joy, just as there was such an unaccountable reluctance to admit it. We are afraid to take hold, yet not afraid to let go our hold. We are afraid to rejoice, 
yet not afraid to be sorrowful. We condemn the presumption of coming nigh. We palliate the still more daring presumption of standing afar off. We shrink from assurance as a piece of over-venturous self-esteem and self-will. We do not hesitate about non-assurance, nor remember that it involves far darker and more daring sin. One way of losing our joy is by magnifying faith at the expense of Christ. When first the light broke upon us, and the day spring from on high visited our darkness, we had neither the time nor the heart to brood over self, or analyze our feelings, or to go through the long chemical process said to be necessary in order to ascertain the genuineness and test the quality of our faith. We thought it enough that it had brought us to Christ, and its special excellency seemed to be that it enabled us to forget self and lose sight of everything pertaining to self, whether the evil or the good. But by degrees a change has come over us. We tire of looking thus at one object in one way, and that's so entirely simple. Our feelings lose their edge and our joy dims. We try to get back these feelings and to burnish anew our faded joy, but we take unlawful means and so fail. The matter has hitherto been too simple, we think, and so joy has given way not being able to sustain itself without something more substantial than the mere believing of God's record. We resort to what is more complex. We mix up faith and the fruits of faith together, thinking that that will do. Or we insist that faith shall mean more than we took it to mean at first, or than God intends it to mean, thinking that that will do, and that by thus broadening and deepening and consolidating the act of faith we shall make it capable of sustaining the joy which we suppose that we have lost from the inadequacy of the chain on which it was suspended. Or we change it into a moral action, a religious performance, a meritorious grace, a qualifying excellency, by the possession of which we are to raise ourselves above the common class of sinners, and so ensure the favor of God, thinking that that will do. Or, we will have it to mean a certain undefined fervent frame of soul which we are to pray ourselves into, work ourselves into, frighten ourselves into by the fear of hell, or cajole and coax ourselves into by the hope of heaven, thinking that that will do, and that thus we shall possibly persuade Christ to be gracious to us and to restore our banished joy. Or we take it to be an act of such peculiar delicacy and intricacy as can only be performed in a certain mood of mind, or only ventured on after we have proved ourselves to be previously and sufficiently possessed of a certain amount of dejection and doubt and darkness and humiliation, thinking that this will do, and that having undergone such a tedious, sorrowful process of bruising and sifting and purging, we shall be found in a condition such as will recommend us to Christ, or in which God shall find it safe to trust us anew with the treasures of his joy. Thus it is that in order to recover lost joy, we magnify faith at the expense of its object, in proportion as the act becomes more bulky and substantial and well-favored. Its object becomes lean and unsatisfying. In the effort to swell out the former, we have done sad injustice to the latter. Just as the former has increased, the latter has decreased. The friend of the bridegroom has eclipsed the bridegroom himself. Faith has been substituted for Christ, so that, instead of being the way to him, it is an obstruction in the way. Instead of taking hold of Christ, it takes hold of itself, and so grasps a shadow. The morning star, which once engrossed us wholly with its glory, is now looked at, but at intervals, the telescope having become the great object of attraction. 
and instead of still continuing to gaze upon the fair orb above us, we spend our time in examining our own eye, in testing our acts of vision, in looking at our lookings, in thinking of our thinkings, as if in such ways and by such processes we could restore our peace. But it was not in this way that joy was found at first, neither is it in this way that it can be regained. It is no doubt the result of believing, but it is not the extract or essence of faith. Unbelief shuts out joy, faith lets it in. But whether shut out or let in, the joy remains the same, and its source abides unchanged in him who is the same yesterday and today and forever. The first message that reached us, and for a season so fully gladdened us, was, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second message to which we have betaken ourselves when the gladness of the first has faded is, Believe in your own faith. The result of our reception of the first was peace unutterable. That, coming from the second, is trouble and heaviness of spirit, which in order to disguise its evil we are taught to call humility, but which contains in it the seeds of all self-righteousness and pride. This is the dim religious light in which all false faiths walk abroad. At the best it is but starlight or moonshine, more generally it is mist and thick darkness. That which comes from the knowledge of Christ is light and gladness, that which comes from the knowledge of our own faith is gloom and unrest. Christ's counsel, whether to the mere sinner or to the backsliding saint that has let go his hold, is come unto me. But the advice which we too often give in such circumstances is get faith, pray for conviction, use the means, wait on ordinances, do your best, and by and by Christ will take pity on such a diligent seeker and waiter and restore your joy. But until you have felt more than you do, until you have brought yourself into the consciousness of having thus prepared yourself, until you have satisfied yourself as to the depth and genuineness of the change wrought in you, until you have passed through stages of rest and struggle, of light and darkness, of faith and unbelief, you have no right to expect relief, and the restoration of your joy would be a mere spiritual deception. Thus the poor soul, instead of being at once brought face to face with Jesus, and made to hear from his lips the joyful, neither do I condemn thee, is taught that this Savior of the lost is an austere man, insisting on terms and conditions such as no sinner upon earth can hope to be able to comply with, fixing a standard of faith which he can no more reach than he can fulfill the whole law, no longer receiving publicans and sinners, but keeping them waiting at his door till they have satisfied both themselves and him as to the superior quality of their faith and repentance. Thus, too, the sinner is taught that doubting is a safer state than believing, and that it is from the former, not from the latter, that he is to expect salvation and joy. The joy first came to us in believing, it is kept in believing, and if at any time it be lost, it is to be recovered in believing. For Christ is all and in all, and it is through the simple knowledge of what he is, what he has done, that we have joy in the Lord or the joy of the Lord. Yet doubtless there are many ways in which this joy is broken, many points at which trouble assails, many chinks at which darkness finds its way in. There is only one way of finding the joy, but many ways of losing it, one way of letting in the light, many ways of shutting it out. When sin is freely indulged in, then the joy departs, for it is a holy joy and cannot dwell with evil. 
When worldliness overtakes us, then joy forsakes us, for it is an unworldly joy. When covetousness comes in, then joy goes out, for it is a joy which has to do with treasure in heaven. When double-mindedness comes in, then joy goes out, for it is a single-eyed, single-minded joy, the joy of sincerity and uprightness. When the love of pleasure comes in, then the joy goes out, for it is joy which has no connection with the vanities or gaieties or lusts or pleasures of a vain world. When ambition comes in, joy goes out, for it is a lowly joy that seeks not great things but loves earth's poverty and shade. When indolence comes in, then joy goes out, for it is active, laborious, not slothful joy. When self-pleasing or man-pleasing comes in, then joy goes out, for it is the joy of him who pleased not himself and who sought not honor from man. Besides these, there are many other things which daily threaten our joy, and which sometimes, though transiently, interrupt it. There are cares, anxieties, vexations, losses, crosses, thorns in the flesh, sickness, weariness of body, faintness of spirit, and the like. These must be watched against and prevented from engrossing us, lest if they be allowed to occupy us, they, for a season at least, rob us of our treasure. Be sober, be vigilant, be steadfast and unmovable. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Hold fast that which ye have received that no man take your crown. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be not weary in well-doing, and remember in all your well-doing that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Thirdly, how to use it. Joy works in various ways in the soul which possesses it. Its tendencies are all towards activity in every direction, and as such we must turn them all to good account. Joy is the health of the soul, and just as we use our health, so we are to use our joy. Joy stimulates, let us use it as a stimulant. Joy gives us courage, let us use it to make us valiant and fight. Joy makes us patient and persevering, let us use it for the increase of our patience and perseverance. Joy enlarges as well as uplifts the heart, let us use it for the enlargement of our sympathies and for the holding up of our hands. Joy braves disappointment and breaks through hindrances. Let us use it for enabling us to press forward in spite of all discouragement. Joy keeps us from envy, jealousy, malice, little-mindedness, and the like. Let us use it for such ends. Joy makes us liberal in giving, generous in all we say or do or plan. Let us use it for such ends. In all these ways the joy of the Lord is our strength. Thus wrote one of our English reformers. When I live in a settled and steadfast assurance about the state of my soul, methinks then I am as bold as a lion. I can laugh at all trouble, no affliction daunts me. But when I am eclipsed in my comforts, I am of so fearful a spirit that I could run into a very mouse-hole. Latimer The use of joy is a daily thing, and the joy itself is never out of place. It is constantly needed. It is the abiding possession of this joy that gives life and tone to our whole being, that imparts the true expression to all our words and actions, that keeps us from sluggishness and procrastination on the one hand, and from uncomely and disastrous haste on the other, diffusing throughout us a combined calmness and fervor which nothing save a joy that is divine, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, the joy of the Lord, could communicate. The power of inward joy in subduing anger, 
in eradicating bad temper, in soothing restlessness, in calming fretfulness, in producing contentedness of spirit, in awakening genial and large-hearted sympathies, in enabling us to move easily and comfortably through every duty, to do the small gracefully and the great with manful boldness. The power, I say, of inward joy in all these respects is marvelous and truly blessed. If any doubt it, let them try. How useful is this joy in every circle, from the narrowest to the widest! How useful to the parent that by his joyful countenance he may recommend Christ to his children, moving among them as the possessor of a gladness which they cannot but see, even though they may not wholly understand! How useful is this joy to masters that they may commend the service of God to their servants, to their apprentices, to every inmate of their house, or worker in their shop! How useful is this joy to merchants and men of business, that they may show their customers, or their clients, or their fellow tradesmen, what a truly comfortable thing religion is! How useful is this joy to ministers and to teachers, to all workers for God, that they may let men see in their countenances and in their life the joy of which they speak, and to which they are inviting their fellow men! How useful is this joy of the Lord! How needful for our own souls! How needful in order that we may be a blessing to others and do the work of God. A life of joy is a vigorous, healthful, telling life. Without it we become heartless and aimless, and the life we live, however busy and laborious, is a life without power, without expression, and without success. Faculties and means in great measure would be thrown away, all for want of the joy of the Lord which is our strength. Nor is there anything which will better mark the difference between us and the world than this joy. For the world has no joy, and it cannot help feeling the difference in this respect between itself and us. Besides, by this joy we shall be kept separate from the world, better than by any other thing. The true joy makes us indifferent to the false. It destroys our relish for earthly pleasure. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might is to be filled with His joy. And being filled with this, it will flow out consciously or unconsciously, whatever we are saying or doing. It will cheer us in toil. It will nerve us for endurance. It will turn weariness into rest. It will keep us from slumbering at our post. It will make our faces as flint against gainsayers. It will serve us instead of spear and buckler. It will be water to us when thirsty and bread to us when hungry. It will be lifting up when there is casting down. It will be riches in the day of poverty, and healing in the day of wounding, and enlarging in the day of straightening. By it we shall run with patience the race set before us, fight the good fight of faith, wrestle with principalities and powers, and endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. It may be well to gather out a few of the many words which God has spoken to us concerning this joy. He presents it to us as the believer's heritage, his present possession, which nothing adverse, either outward or inward, ought to affect, save in the way of adding to its fullness. We are the circumcision, says Paul, who worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.3. And the converts at Jerusalem are described as those who gladly receive the word, Acts 2.41. For the tidings brought, being glad tidings, did, as soon as received, fill the soul with gladness, joy unspeakable and full of glory. This joy was no new thing announced for the first time by Christ and his apostles. 
David had said, My heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. Psalm 16:19. The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. Psalm 21, 1 and 6. I will be glad in the Lord. Psalm 104, 34. Strength and gladness are in his place. 1 Chronicles 16:27. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and wine increased. Psalm 4.7 Let them that love thy name be joyful in thee. Psalm 5.11 My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. Psalm 35.9 Solomon had said, The hope of the righteous shall be gladness. Proverbs 10.28 Isaiah had said, With joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12.3 the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord. Isaiah 29:19. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Isaiah 61:10. We will rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Isaiah 25:9. In the New Testament, it is even more frequently referred to, which is the more to be noticed because the greater tribulation of the saints in the days of the apostles and because of the many sorrows predicted as the church's lot during the whole interval of her Lord's absence. The Master's own words are, Rejoice, and be exceeding glad. Matthew 5.12 These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. John 15.11 And the disciples' words are, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. 1 John 1.4 Rejoice evermore. Throughout the Bible we find joy, not sorrow, represented as that which is to pervade religion, that without which religion is not acceptable, if indeed it can exist. The rooted thought of man is that there is something in sorrow that is acceptable to God, that the rueful look is a more religious thing than cheerfulness. The thought of the worldly is that their only joy is to be in the world, and the thought of the more serious who are seeking rest but finding none is that a sinner has no right to be happy here, and that austerity and sadness are more likely to recommend him to God than their opposites. But the thoughts of God are wholly different. There is no religion in gloom or darkness or distrust. There is as much sin in gloom as in mirth and gaiety. Distrust of God, which of necessity produces discomfort of soul, is a hateful sin, and as a sin not confessed and put away, it must separate us from God, must enfeeble our walk, must destroy our vigor, must make us timid and wavering, and must hinder success. God delights in joy, and his desire for his people is that they should be trustful and joyful, and this both for their own sakes and for his glory. God needs vigorous workers, and he can only have these by bestowing on them a joy adequate to the greatness of the work. In joy the apostles went forth to work for God, and they found that the joy of the Lord was their strength. So shall we find it in these last days, our joy increasing as the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Rejoice in the Lord alway, and again I say rejoice. Philippians 3.1 and 4.4 Know what that means. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10 And in the end, when the Lord comes to pour into us all the fullness of the joy of which we have but had the earnest here, we shall understand what he said to Israel, I will make them rejoice from their sorrow. 
Jeremiah 31:13. We shall know the songs and everlasting joy promised of old, Isaiah 35:10. We shall hear the sentence which closes all our labor and sums up our reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew 25, 23.